Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Thursday, February 16th. Whew. A lot going on today. President Biden, just an hour ago, spoke to the nation. Somebody uh, in conservative media. Oh, no, wait a minute. It wasn't conservative media. I think it was Marco Rubio said something like, oh, we like Biden uh, doesn't have, you know, doesn't have the guts to talk about these things with us. What? Marco? Seriously? What are you talking about? Uh, anyway. Maybe in answer to that, or just to shut him up, uh, President Biden came out today and talked about the aerial objects. I know there's so much going on in the world, but maybe it's because there's so much going on in the world that it seems so much more fun, a little lighter to focus on the UFOs, if I may call them that. So there have been four. The first one was definitely identified as a Chinese spy balloon. And then Friday, Saturday and Sunday, we uh, shot down other objects. One described as the size of a car, one described as cylindrical, one described as an octagon. And uh, nobody would say what they were or where they came from or what they were doing. I mean, you know that information is going to come to light sooner or later. And today, I guess it was sooner. President Biden um, came out to tell us what we already knew and maybe a few things that we didn't already know about these objects that we have shot out of the sky. Listen to this. Oh, I'm sorry, Lady B. I thought you said you were cutting it. Oh, okay. Um, Okay. well, um, maybe we'll get to that after the commercial break. I thought... Um, I thought B was cutting it, but um, we don't have it quite ready yet. Okay, something else that's going on today that um, I find, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe you won't find this shocking. The FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, Chicago Lodge 7, the union that represents Chicago police officers. They're having an event this coming Monday, February 20th, uh, to back the blue. Uh, the event is open only to law enforcement. Not even spouses are invited. It's going to be in Elmhurst. A Monday, by the way, is President's Day. I will be here, but you probably have to work as well. But some people actually get the day off. Ah, you bankers, you. So um, at 3.30 in the afternoon in Elmhurst, Chicago Lodge 7 is going to be having an event open only to law enforcement that's titled Back the Blue. Their speaker... This Monday, February 20th, their speaker is Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is coming to Illinois to talk to the Fraternal 
order of police this coming Monday. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, the as yet undeclared candidate for the Republican nomination to be the next president. And this is, if you needed any confirmation that he is indeed running for president, I think you have it here. I think you have it here. Ron DeSantis is coming to Illinois in a closed to closed event on President's Day this coming Monday to speak to the FOP. Now, the larger question here is, I think, how this is going to affect the mayor's race. Honestly, if I were Paul Vallis, I would not be particularly happy about this. Not that Paul Vallis in any way, shape, or form dictates to the FOP what they do or do not do and who they have as speakers and who they do not. Paul Vallis has worked very hard to defend his endorsement from the FOP amid accusations that while John Catanzara, its head, may be a particularly unsavory sort of human being, that doesn't mean that the rank and file are unsavory human beings. I think any candidate, despite what they say, oh, I didn't seek the nomination, I think any candidate running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago would have accepted the endorsement of the Fraternal Order of Police. It's an important group in the city of Chicago. But Paul Vellis has worked very hard to distance himself, distance himself from John Catanzara to silence the voices that keep saying, oh, he's really just a Republican. He's not even really a Democrat. And I think regardless of what happens with the FOP, regardless of what happens with DeSantis, I think this is going to blow back. I think this is going to blow back on Paul Vallis's mayoral campaign. I think this is going to reignite all that conversation about how um, he's not really a Democrat. He's not really going to be the kind of progressive, forward-thinking, unifying mayor that Chicago needs. I guess I can't blame the FOP. I mean, you know, if they're getting a, a speaker who's potentially going to be very big on the national stage very shortly. Many people believe DeSantis will declare his run to be the Republican nominee for president in May once the Florida legislature wraps up its session. But um, it's as if who designed, whoever designed this event should have, should have taken a longer perspective. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see how the rest of the media, I don't think that this I don't think the fact that Ron DeSantis is coming to speak to the FOP has gotten a lot of traction yet. But in the next few days, you're going to see it all over 
the Tribune, the Sun-Times, and other news sources. And um, I don't think it's going to do Paul Vallis's mayoral candidacy any favors. I, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this situation plays out in this very, very close race we have coming up February 28th. Speaking of which, uh, today we are going to, we're going to do a Union Strong segment, and then we are going to talk to uh, two of the people who are in the mayor's race, State Representative Cam Buckner and uh, Alderperson Sophia King are going to join us. They're each going to join us for an hour. So we are going to open up the phone lines, give you the time to um, call in with your questions or text me with your questions, 773-763-9278, You can call in on that phone line. Or you can shoot me a text. Um, I will try my darndest to keep, I know some of you also email. I, I will be looking at my email. I will be looking at our text line. And I also have some questions that we've asked some of the other candidates that you have already uh, forwarded to me that we will be asking these two as well. Um, so that's what's happening today. Get your um, texting fingers ready. We're going to take a break and be back with more news right after this. Tonight on Democracy Now! As the death toll in Turkey and Syria nears 42,000, continuing to rise, we go to southern Turkey to two cities hit hard by the devastating earthquakes. More than a million people have been left homeless, including many Syrian refugees. Then more on the bomb train in Ohio, where a train derailment turned the community of East Palestine into a toxic disaster zone. All those stories and more tonight at 11 on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Uh, Just to recap, about 1 o'clock this afternoon, President Biden made a speech. Was speech. No, it wasn't a speech. It was an appearance where he came out to tell us what's going on with the mysterious objects flying across the skies. We shot down something that the government told us was a Chinese spy balloon. The Chinese say it was a weather balloon and that we overreacted and we should have shot it down. And oh, by the way, there are 10 U.S. balloons that have flown over China. So there. <laughs> then um, Friday, we shot down. Another object. Saturday, we shot down another object. Sunday, we shot down another object. All of various shapes and sizes. These last three were flying at a lower altitude. The Chinese spy balloon was at 60,000 feet. The highest of the other three was at 40,000 feet. And we were told that regardless of what they were or who sent them, they were a danger to commercial aviation. Therefore, we decided to take them out. It also appears 
that we've made some adjustments to our surveillance programs. President Biden alluded to that today, that we have essentially tweaked our radar to spot more of these things, because that was one of the big questions. Have these things always been there and we just didn't know about it? Or are we suddenly experiencing skies filled with stuff? Yeah. Anyway, President Biden talked about it today. He um, didn't talk for very long. (laughs) And he didn't really take any questions, though, as he walked off the stage, he seemed to find some of the questions um, amusing, shall we say? So I I think this is pretty much part of the meat and potatoes of what he had to say. Um, Listen to this. Our intelligence community is still assessing all three incidences. They're reporting to me daily and will continue their urgent efforts to do so, and I will communicate that to the Congress. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were, but nothing, nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other, any other country. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. When I came into office, I instructed our intelligence community to take a broad look at the phenomenon of unidentified aerial objects. We know that a range of entities, including countries, companies and research organizations, operate objects at altitudes for purposes that are not nefarious, including legitimate scientific research. I want to be clear. We don't have any evidence that there has been a sudden increase in the number of objects in the sky. We're now just seeing more of them partially because the steps we've taken to increase our radars, to narrow our radars. And we have to keep adapting our approach to uh, delaying, to dealing with these challenges. That's why I've directed my team to come back to me with sharper rules for how we will deal with these unidentified objects moving forward, distinguishing distinguishing between those that are likely to pose safety and security risks that necessitate action and those that do not. So there you have it. But here's the thing that I don't quite grasp. If these objects are from private companies or research institutions, wouldn't they know if their device suddenly stopped transmitting? You know, if I were at Caltech and I sent up a a balloon to, I don't know, assess particulates in the atmosphere and the government shot it down, wouldn't I... Like all of a sudden I'd show up at my lab and there was no more information coming from my device. And and whether you're a private company or a research institution or an institution of higher learning. Isn't there a process? Don't you think that they should have to tell at least the Federal Aviation Administration when they're sending up an object, particularly if it is meant to hover at an altitude where commercial jets fly? You know, you have to <clears throat> you have to license your dog. 
you telling me that I can put together an instrument package and attach it to a balloon and just send it up and not have to let anybody know? That doesn't make any sense. And if that is the case, then we have been very, very lucky. We have been wildly lucky that commercial jets haven't run into these things, haven't sucked these things into their engines. Doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> Doesn't make any sense that there is no notification process, that there is no licensing procedure, that there is no shared tracking. So, um, you know, I suppose if you're at Fermi Lab and you want to send up a balloon because you need to record something or other, you can do that. But, I again, I find it hard to believe that there is no process, that there is no process for, oh, well, we're going to send up this balloon. We better let the FAA know that we're doing this so they make sure that nobody flies into it. I don't know. More to come. More to come on this. I still have questions. One last news item. You heard uh, this um, briefly at the top of the hour. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, who uh, in the final days of the campaign had a stroke that he was treated for and recovering from as he won and took office. He was a little bit lightheaded a few days ago and went to the hospital. And that's that's what I call hot potato medicine. Once you've had something really, really wrong with you, nobody wants to be caught as being the one person who uh, didn't properly diagnose you going forward. So in other words, as I, I gave this example before, I've had cancer So if I go to my doctor and I discover a lump, the doctor may be convinced it's just a fatty lump, you know, a little fatty tumor. And if you go to the doctor, the doctor will say, it's just a fatty tumor, don't worry about it. I go to the doctor and they'll say, well, I think it's a fatty tumor, but we can have it taken out. I can schedule surgery for you. Because I'm a hot potato. Nobody, they want to pass me along to the next doctor as quickly as humanly possible. Nobody wants to get stuck with the hot potato. Oh, yes, right. You had cancer. You've got a lump. I'm pretty sure it's nothing, but I'm not going to be the one to make that call. Nope, I'm going to send you to the expert. So he was lightheaded. He went to the hospital. They kept him for a couple of days, and they said, you know what? It was nothing. It's not another stroke. It's not anything. He was lightheaded. Well, now um, the announcement has come that he's checked himself into Walter Reed um, Hospital for clinical depression. He has admitted before that he's experienced depression on and off in his life. And you know what? Even if he had not, when you're especially a man, sorry about that, but especially a man recovering from a heart attack or another major medical incident, A secondary depression, getting depressed, 
almost always comes with the territory. Some people don't have it as bad. Some people have it worse. But that's a real blow to your sense of self. And realizing that you have limitations, that your body isn't always something you can count on, those are some really hard things to deal with. I speak from personal experience. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I was completely symptom-free, except for this little nodule in my neck. I was healthy. I was fit, probably one of the times in my life when I have been most fit. My weight was great. And I was like, wait a minute, that wasn't the deal, body. I was, you promised me that if I took care of you, you would just keep being healthy and lasting for a long time. How could you break this deal? All that time I spent exercising, all that time I spent being careful with my diet, and you didn't, you didn't come up with your half of the deal, which was that I was supposed to be healthy into old age. That's hard to wrap your head around. And I think sometimes men are less equipped. And maybe I'm being sexist here. I know that it affects women, too, and that women get depressed after this stuff, too. But I, I, I think that it happens. I think you can almost count on it happening with a man. It's just such a blow to your sense of self that your body has betrayed you, essentially that depression often, often, especially a heart attack, often comes after the fact. And kudos to him because he knew, he knew that checking himself into Walter Reed was going to get all this publicity. And he did it anyway. He did it anyway, just like Jason Kander, uh, who... um, was considered a presidential contender. You know, the guy from Kansas who almost turned that into a Democratic Senate seat and then abruptly brought his political career to an end because he wanted to get treated for PTSD. That was making his life a living hell and taking all the joy out of everything. It takes a big man to walk away and take care of himself when you know it's going to be national news. Hats off to John Fetterman for getting the help he needs. He will be a better man for it. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with one of our Union Strong segments right after this. Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We do a regular segment here on WCPT that we call Union Strong. We're a union shop, and we are big union supporters. And uh, periodically, we have union people on our air to talk about what they're doing and how life is for their workers and the other projects and charity work and political stuff that they are involved with. One of the big problems, I think, part of the reason, you know, for a while, unions got a bad rap 
you know, it was just a bunch of greedy people who wanted a lot of money. And, and the tide, public opinion kind of turned against unions. Union membership went down. Well, that tide is turning yet again, and people are starting to understand that if you want to have a job and have a family and not have to work two or three jobs and be able to support that family and retire and have a good pension, well, you know what? A union job is a great way to achieve all of those goals. On today's Union Strong segment, I'm joined by Gary Menzel, President and Business Manager at Roofers and Waterproofers Local 11. Gary, how are you? I'm great, Joan. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, so much has been going on politically. And, um, you know, I really do think that President Biden... You know, we call him blue collar Biden. I really believe he is one of the strongest union supporters we've had in the White House in my lifetime. How do you feel about him compared to past presidents? No, I would agree 100 percent. He's done more for working people since anyone from FDR to now. And my lifetime, nobody's come close to him. You know, not Kennedy, not, not Obama, not Clinton, none of them, you know, and, uh, you know, he's he's got more things planned for us, too, which is great. You know, uh, the infrastructure bill is going to put money in states to fix the roads and bridges and buildings that, that have been crumbling over the years. It's fantastic. You know, I, I mean, I love the nickname Blue Collar Biden. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, and here in Illinois, I think we are leading the way. Of course, we passed the Workers' Rights Amendment, which, you know, despite the... Uh, misinformation that was floated around it, the Workers' Rights Amendment simply codifies what the vast majority of us already believe. Gosh, somebody who wants to organize should have that right. Somebody who wants to unionize and lobby for safer working conditions or a better a better wage, they have that right. And, I, you know, you talk to somebody on the street... And they're going to say, well, do you think people should have the right to organize? Well, of course they should have the right to organize. And we wrote it up and and put it in law. So or as I like to call it, the anti-Bruce Rauner Act, just in case we get another loony governor down the road who decides that workers' rights are um, an impotent impediment to business success and goes after them again. So good for us. Good for us on that. And. There are other programs and initiatives that are related to the Workers' Rights Amendment. One of them is called the Temp Worker Fairness and Safety Act. And we asked Gary if he would come on the radio with us today and talk about this and explain this. So, Gary, what is the Temp Workers' Fairness and Safety Act? Yeah, I was contacted by some uh, people that we have worked with in the past, uh, when some of the non-union roofers that, that we've tried to organize or just had conversations with over the years, we're talking with them and we found out that they were made to go to work, load trucks in the morning, go to the job, do their day's uh, work, load trucks at the end of the day for the next day, and they were paid eight hours a day, and, and they were working 10 to 12 hours a day. So we work with these groups, and we filed lawsuits uh, for under the Wage Payment Collection Act, 
against a lot of these contracts. We had five, six, seven different lawsuits, and we recouped a lot of back wages for these workers. Some had left and joined the union over the years. Some went off and did other things. But in this situation with the temp workers, you know, these are people that you know are out on the street, not represented, don't really work for a contractor or any employer. They're looking for day labor anywhere they can get it whether it's in the construction industry or factory or something like that, you know. And when when that legislation was first enacted, you know, the Day and Temporary Labor Services Act, there was 300,000 of those workers. There's up to 650,000 of them, you know, the data collected by the Illinois Department of Labor already right now. So there's 650,000 people who who are, you know, not really represented or don't have a full-time job with an employer. They go out and seek temporary work every day, you know, and there's branch offices around the, um, the, the state, you know, where these temp labor services have to register. And at one time, you know, it was 150 to 600 branches. There's over 300 to over 800 of them now. So, so you can tell that this is uh, an area where people can possibly be abused in the workplace. And that's one of the issues with the workers' rights amendment. People have an opportunity to better their life, form and join a union. These people are just trying to get a day's work and stuff in certain situations of that. And some of these um, offices and, and people that run these temp groups, they're underground and unregistered still. It's 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 a it's a little bit of an underground industry. Some of this um, temp worker stuff, and these people are particularly vulnerable to you know labor right abuses. Uh, you know they're unpaid for wages at times. There's there's failure to pay for all their hours work. You know they don't get minimum wage. You know they don't get overtime. You know um, a lot of times there's a negotiated price with the work, and you know the the. Employer will tell them, okay, you'll get paid at the end of the week. And by that time, they, they're, they're gone. They don't even see them again. Some of them go without getting paid and stuff, you know. And the, the temporary staffing industry, you know, has these temporary laborers, you know, like they're twice the poverty level and stuff. So mm. people are just trying to get by, get a job. And <clears throat> this legislation will make it a lot harder for these employers to steal their money and we're working with these groups. We're trying to help them get this, uh, you know, Temp Labor Service Act, you know, amended and these new um, this new language put in there. It's just amazing um, that some people are still working like this under these conditions, Gary. It's it's sometimes, you know, people think anybody that's in the trades is a union person and making good money. But that really is not the case. No, no, it isn't. And. And these people are also occupational injuries, two to three times higher the rate than, you know, directly hired, you know, employees and stuff, because directly hired employees to at least get to go to the doctor or at least get to have their injuries addressed and stuff in workplaces. These people have nothing going for them and stuff. And, you know, there's a a huge, um, you know, tax issue here, too, where a lot of this stuff isn't even being reported for taxes and stuff. So. So the state's losing money, you know, so this type of um, industry needs to be, you know, uh, reined in a little bit more, regulated a little bit more. And these workers need protection. Well, um, I want to talk to you more about this, Gary, 
Uh, we are talking to Gary Menzel. This is our Union Strong segment. He's president and business manager at Roofers and Waterproofers Local 11. We need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the Temp Worker Fairness and Safety Act after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our Union Strong segment. We talk to various leaders of various unions in and around the Chicagoland area to find out what's going on with them, whether it's a new program, whether it's a new effort to bring in apprentices, whether it is working with legislators to try to make Illinois a safer, more equitable place to work. And right now we're talking to Gary Menzel about the temp workers, uh, a proposal that is working its way through Illinois. I know that there are some legislators, uh, Edgar Gonzalez, Robert Peters, Teresa Ma, Dagmar D, who are working with uh, the unions on this, Gary. Um, where does it stand? Well, I believe right now it's down there. It's in session. They're looking at it. I think it has a real good chance of passing. Um, there's there's a lot of pro, pros towards this. You know, like, you know, there's there's companies that are on the up and up. You know, they pay their taxes. They pay their employees. They're bidding against some of this work that these temp agencies or their clients are also looking at. So they're at a competitive disadvantage here. You know, so it makes sense for the state legislators to look at this and say, hey, this is a no brainer. This is helping these people. It's also helping these contractors bidding on this work fairly, willing to pay everything that's supposed to be paid to the workers in the state tax wise and all that. So I, I think it has a very good chance of passing. Excellent. Excellent. And and this this legislative session or just by the time the year's out or eventually, what's our time frame here? I think it'll be done in this legislative session. Uh, this one, they got on it early and um, uh, this one doesn't seem like it's, you know, they have the super majority. I can't really see them not really passing this at all. This, this makes perfect sense. And um, this is what you know, Illinois is about helping the uh, uh, worker get to where they need to be. You know, whether, you know, you're black, brown or white, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, whatever industry you're in and stuff, you know, workers need to be represented. Workers need to be paid what they're supposed to be paid. Employers should be paying the tax on these and paying the wages, too. Let's talk about some of the other things that are going on in the in the world of of unions and and union workers. Uh, specifically, you know, we've talked before about various climate jobs, climate related jobs that are available in Illinois. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, there's a climate job initiative in uh, Illinois, and they're looking to. Um, Combat climate change with clean energy and create good-paying union jobs that are changing the way energy and certain industries um, are run. You know, so you'll see a lot more solar coming on. They're looking at uh, carbon 
free, healthy schools, you know, where, you know, you can, in a lot of our schools, you know, you know, in the city of Chicago, you know, there are older schools and stuff. We've been rebuilding a lot of them. Some of the suburbs are being rebuilt and, you know, they'll do free energy audits for these schools. They're giving out solar power incentives, you know, for these schools, um, going to electric school buses, you know, so, so the schools are changing. And seen a lot of businesses that are being built are putting solar fields right on their property to create energy, whether they use it, if, it, if it's, you know, um, feasible for them to use it or they're selling it back to the power company. So a lot of them are creating their, their own energy. They're still looking at nuclear. I know a lot of people um, are trying to get away from nuclear. Um, they're trying to get away from coal. So they, I know in Biden's speech, he said we'd be free and clear of oil and gas in 10 years. And I, I really don't, I don't agree with that. It's not going to be 10 years. It's going to be 50 years or more. But uh, the, the industry is changing. The state's doing a lot. Uh, one way it's affecting the roofers union, though, is on a lot of these projects, the older buildings, the height of the parapet walls, the doors and the windows. In Illinois now, uh, it used to be an R20, um, you know, a resistance value, you know, for, for roofing. And they've upped it to R30 value right now. And um, Gary, I don't understand what an R value is. Could you explain it to me? Resistance value for, for insulation, you know, on a roof to resist the heat and cold in the building, you know. So every roofing system has insulation. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. it sits on the deck, you know, and then there's a waterproofing membrane on top, and it creates an R value, a resistance value that, that keeps the hot air and the cold air separated so it doesn't create condensation, keeps it so you don't lose heat or heat enters the building and stuff, or vice versa with the cold in the wintertime and stuff. You know, same thing, the same principle in your house, uh, attic blanket, you know, creates an R value in there. And, and so is an R30... More protection than an R twenty. That is correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so in in roofing, you know, they want to up this R value, and some of these buildings, you know, will, they're not conducive to that much insulation, parapet heights, um, you know, air conditioners, fans, and vents on there. Everything would have to be raised. So, if all of a sudden. We're trying to create um, you know, an energy as a net zero energy building, you know, and the roofing has to be, you know, redone, and the the actual structures and 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 um, equipment on the the roof has to be replaced. Ups the cost, may prevent some of these building owners to do this type of work. So we're looking to try to work with, uh, you know, this energy code and the state on like some variables that may work out to where you can still do uh, an hour 20 and maybe put a white reflective roof on or a, a vegetative covering or something like that that gives it a little more hour value and also gives it a little more energy efficiency. So, so all these things that are good for the environment sometimes can hamper an industry a little bit. So we're mm-hmm. trying to work with everybody on it and see what happens. I have a question, Gary. I know that, you know, especially with the subsidies, that are available. There's another renewed push to get people to put solar panels on their on their roofs. And um, I, I just got this strange email from Tesla that was like, oh, do you want to find out about solar panels and Tesla batteries? Well, click here. And I was like, well, where's that coming from? 
But um, if you put, I've also heard, and maybe this is only true of solar farms, I've heard that solar panels can create a lot of heat. I, I If you have solar panels on your roof, do you need to have a special kind of roof to handle that heat? I haven't seen that yet, Joan, where you had a special type of shingle on there, you know, but it does generate more heat. It can be hotter under the the panels. Um, They're generally set right on top of a residential home, you know, and they're connected to the electrical source and stuff like that. But I've only seen... um, you know, the uh, regular asphalt singles, 30, 35 years and stuff. They do have integrated, you know, um, solar integrated uh, shingles and uh, um, slate and tile, you know, the uh, um, rock and clay that you put on there. There's some solar integrated uh, systems that you could that wouldn't create all that heat. But again, anytime you have something that's electrical, it's going to be a little bit warmer. You know, so yeah, I could see that, but I haven't heard of any issues with it. But if they do put it on these big fields, you know, it's it it could be warmer under them panels and stuff. Gary, did I understand what you just said correctly? Like if somebody has a slate roof on their house, you could replace it with slate that's also a solar panel? Yeah, but it's generally the um they've got a new um they're, they're kind of like plastic now. It's it's like a recycled material and stuff, you know. So you, it looks just like it, but it's not the actual rock from the quarry anymore, you know. But it looks just like it when it's on a house. Huh. And, and asphalt as well? The asphalt shingles, yeah, they have some integrated asphalt shingles now, too, with uh, um, solar in there. Yeah. The industry is changing. I haven't seen it installed too much at all. Um, it may be in some of the other states, but uh, I haven't really seen it you know, catch on here. Everybody's putting the panels on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would imagine it's a cost issue. Yeah, I, I would imagine so, too. I mean, unless you're... S- Unless you're in a position where you need a new roof on your house anyway and you you have to go with something, I suppose that might make it a little bit different. But just putting panels on a pre-existing roof seems like it would be a lot easier and a lot more cost effective that way. I know that, you know, obviously roofers local, you work about installing roofs, but... If somebody wants to have solar panels installed, do they need to coordinate with you? Um, I mean, because the people who install solar panels, that's a business in and of itself, right? The roofers local doesn't do that, does it? You know, a couple of our contractors have, have done a little bit of that work, but I believe they've also partnered up with some electrical contractors to do it. Uh, we recently had a project in Park Forest, which is a southern suburb here in uh, Cook County, and the Electrical Workers Union um, was going out to assist two two families that, you know, um, somehow got a really shoddy job done by some solar companies from out of state, and they needed the roofer, so we got them our residential roofing contractor, Philado Construction. They partnered up together. They were able to take everything off, put a new roof on. There was a grant from somebody, you know, I think it might have been uh, Power Forward Chicago or something like that. There was this grant. 
the electrical workers union and the roofing contractor worked together, put solar on the houses for these two uh, residents of um, Park Forest, and uh, it worked out worked out fantastic. So I think if anybody's thinking of doing you know a solar roof, one thing you want to make sure that you do is if you need a new roof, do that first or work get the two people involved, the roofing contractor, the solar company, get them together, working together on it at the same time, because otherwise you're probably just going to have problems. Mm-hmm. I want to, in the time we have left, I want to shift back to um, what we were talking about earlier, the Temp Worker Fairness and Safety Act, because I know part of that is trying to get protection for the temp workers, and a lot of them, as you know from the statistics, tend to be people of color um, in those jobs. And I know from talking to various union people that that's when you recruit for apprentices, one of the places that you look to are people who are already doing this kind of work, but maybe you know uh, it's a mom and pop shop or maybe it's a larger company, but it's just not a union company. How do you find those people and how do you reach them? It's, it would seem to be the same problem that this uh, Temp Workers Act is going to have. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, an, again, in our, in our union, there's a lot of word of mouth. You know, the workers themselves, the members themselves right now go out and they talk to a friend, a cousin, a relative, whoever it is. We, I was talking to our apprentice director the other day. He said he's already has 200 names of individuals needing to join the Refers and Waterproofers Union here in the Chicagoland area. And we also have, we've, we've, we've talked about this before, we, we also cover the Madison, Wisconsin area. We have a contractor that's looking to do more, more work up there, so we're actually organizing up there. And we use some of the community groups. Uh, we, there's a group right now... Um, you know, up up there in its core justice program that, that helps out a little bit in the Madison area, finding people, making sure people aren't getting ripped off by contractors and stuff, working with, you know, the, the, the attorney generals and stuff like that. Same thing down here. We work with Kwame Raul and stuff, making sure that, you know, if there are issues with contractors stealing people's wages, you know, we try to inform them and the Department of Labor and that. But, but the people, it's basically these programs with, Cisco, Hire360, Big Step, the Court Justice people, word of mouth of these community groups. And we're actually looking at doing a little more with, you know, some, so a few radio ads from, you know, the Hispanic uh, radio stations and some QR codes and stuff like that, letting people know, putting them up in grocery stores and people, you know, places where either parents go or the actual individuals will be going and they can look at that. They all scan it with their phone, gives them the information where to go and, hey, these people are hiring, whether it's a direct hire by the um, employer or directing them right back to the union. Mm -hmm. Well, you've certainly cast a wide net. How how effective has it been? Available to the people, letting them see it, educating the public that these jobs are available. If we don't do that, it takes a, a little longer, but a lot of it is word of mouth of the I interrupted you there. You've cast a wide net. How effective do you feel like you're being in, in getting some of these people and getting them into apprenticeship programs and union programs? Well, our membership, uh, I've, been, I've been in charge for 10 years now. Our membership was about 1,800 and something 
roughly 2,200 and something workers right now. So, so they're, they're picking people up over the years. And one thing about roofing, you know, obviously you and I have discussed it. It, it is a hard job, you know, weather, time off, you know, hours and stuff. Sometimes you can take in 200 people. By the end of that five-year apprenticeship, you might have 125 or 130 left. Well, that's still not bad. <laughs> not bad, no. You're no. Right. Not bad. That's why our numbers kind of continually go up. We've, we've been going up every year except COVID. I think we missed it by five five, five members of, 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 of continual growth, you know. So we're proud. We're happy. Um, we think the future's bright. We believe there's a lot of work, you know, with uh, – Blue collar uh, Joe in there, and uh, what what Pritzker's doing in Illinois, we believe she will be working, you know, for the next three to five years and beyond. Well, Gary, thank you. I appreciate the work you do, and I appreciate your support of our station, and we certainly support you as well. Uh, Gary Menzel, President and Business Manager at Roofers and Waterproofers Local 11, thank you for being here as part of our Union Strong segment, Gary. Thanks again, John. We're going to take a break for news. Be back with more after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. State Representative Cam Buckner was one of the first people to join the race to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago, and uh, he has been uh, steadfast as name after name after name joined him in that race. Uh, he was at our mayoral forum January 26th, where we talked about what he's doing and what he wants to do. Actually, of all the candidates, uh, I think he got the most compliments from his fellow candidates, all talking about what a great guy he was and how they wanted to continue to work with him. Uh, Cam Buckner joins us now to talk to you, answer your questions, and talk about his candidacy. Cam, it is so delightful to have you back again. Thank you, John. It is so good to be here. You know, I was I was really surprised, you know, because there was some at each of these uh, contests. There's always some vitriol, but it's like nobody has anything bad to say about you. <laughs> well, listen, Joe, as you know, a lot of my uh, my opponents in this race have said that they agree with me in many of my policy platforms. And that, that day in January at your forum, uh, even Congressman Garcia said he would vote for me. Uh, if he wasn't in the race. And so, listen, um, I think that that shows that I have the ability to bring people together. You seem to. You you seem to be you seem to almost be uh, above the fray, which is um, which is kind of which is kind of refreshing. You, by all accounts, by all of the polling, you are not one of the front runners in this race. Do you ever think that maybe uh, you would just throw your support to somebody else? Well, I'll say this, John. I, I um, have always been someone who is extremely um, 
complementary of the democratic process, right? Uh, people being able to come into the space and talk about their ideas and how to move folks forward, uh, to me, um, is is really the way that we move this city and this country and, and this state forward, right? But also, um, you know, have been a, a person that believes that you fight. You, you fight because it's important to fight. Uh, as you know, that I've been in this race longer than anybody. In fact, I announced before the mayor even announced that she was running again, right? And so um, for me and the folks who have supported me, uh, it's really about making sure we do the right things to elevate the platform and to have conversations. And, Joan, I'll be very clear about this. Uh, I've been the underdog my entire life, Uh, and uh, I've been a person with a lot of money my entire life. And so um, we see people throwing big bucks around in this race uh, and people trying to push folks out of this space. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think everyone deserves a voice. And the reason uh, that I'm here is to continue to fight and, and to give their voice. And so, um, you know, we're two weeks away. We'll see what happens in the next, uh, you know, 13 days. But um, I am steadfast and, and on the track uh, to do the work to, to bring um, a, a chance and a choice to the people of Chicago. Kim, one of the questions that we got from one of our listeners, uh, Joyce, is, you know, there's nine people. There are nine people in the race. Uh, seven of those nine are African-Americans. And the thinking being that that was going to be a real problem because the African-American vote would be split. And that makes it that it makes it more likely that essentially Paul Vallis and Chewy Garcia, as the only white guy and the only Hispanic guy, might be the ones to make it into the runoff simply because the black vote is strewn among so many different candidates is is that a legitimate argument, do you think? And if so, yes. Uh, if yes, why? If no, why? Yeah, no, it's not legitimate. It's actually a very antiquated um, and short-sighted, myopic uh, argument, if you ask me. Uh, we, we hear a lot of talk and a lot of conjecture about splitting the black vote. Uh, but for those folks who have said that or who have brought up that um, possibility, uh, they can't give me any example of that actually happening in the history of Chicago. Uh, in fact, um, folks who point to uh, you know, the, the, the Eugene Sawyer, uh, Tim Evans fight, that was a fight behind closed doors. Well, maybe in public, uh, against, uh, among elected officials, but those gentlemen were never on a ballot together. Right. Uh, and so when we talk about spending the black law, it, it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened in the history of this city. Uh, in fact, there are folks who would posit to you, Joan, that, uh, the last time that the vote was split in this city, it was white folks. It was, um, the reason that Bill Daly may not be mayor today is because Jerry Joyce entered the race. Um, or Gary McCarthy entered, the, entered, the, entered that race, right? And so, um, you know, I, I'll push back on that because there is no example of that happening. In fact, last time around in 2019, we had a number of black candidates, uh, including um, Amara Enya and LaShawn Ford and Willie Wilson and Neil Salazar Griffin. Uh, and the final two vote-getters, the highest two vote-getters, were two black women who gave us a historical runoff. And so uh, I would ask that folks put those old tropes to bed. They're racist um, and they're not true. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that time has come. Uh, the other side of that coin, of course, is people telling me that Paul Vallis will never, even if he makes it into a runoff, Paul Vallis would never win because as a majority black and brown city, um, Chicago would never elect a white mayor again. But I agree with you. I think that the days, well, I'm not saying that some people don't vote based on some sort of shared commonality with a candidate, whether that's ethnicity or experience or an economic outlook. Uh, I'm not saying it's unheard of, but I think the days of voting for somebody simply because of their race, 
are probably behind us. Do you agree? Do you agree that let's say he's in the runoff that Paul Vallis couldn't possibly win simply because he's white? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know, right? So, and I'll just, I'll preface it by saying, uh, runoff, Chicago runoff math, um, and how we see these things. This is all brand new for us, right? In the long history of the city, we've only had two runoffs so far, uh, and this will be the third one, right? And so, this is we're learning this uh, as we go along. But I do think that there are different, um, uh, different thoughts when it comes to how people choose who, who they're going to vote for. Uh, the, the Latino Policy Forum just put out. A, uh, a a poll uh, that largely said that Latino voters were not voting on racial lines uh, in 2023. Right, so um, you know I think that may be the same for for many uh, demographics in, in this city. I'm not sure where it's where it's going to land us, but I do think that we've got to stop being attached to the antiquated thinking when it comes to how people vote. Has your campaign done any polling recently? We've we've done some recent polling um, uh, a few weeks ago. Actually, we just got those numbers back. Uh, and listen, I think the, the the one piece that is jumping out at me uh, is that there are so still so many people in the city that are undecided. Um, That's really amazing, isn't it? Isn't it, it for is. the the big crop that we have? Every uh, I was talking to uh, some reporter, I can't even remember who the other day, and they said, "Well, you know who the winner is right now? The winner is undecided." <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's true. And, and so for a campaign like ours, who we've been really grassroots and haven't gotten any of the big um, kind of institutional money to move forward. When we see, you know, anywhere from 18 to 25 to 30 percent, depending on what poll you look at, uh, undecided in this race, it gives us hope that we can keep fighting and trying to get uh, those folks on our side. What also is, is damning, I think, Joan, is that we're not having, we're talking about splitting the black vote and having all these conversations, but we're not having a real conversation about the, you know, 60 to 70 percent of Chicagoans who are not going to vote. Um, we're going to have a turnout, uh, and hopefully it's higher than normal, but I don't see it, you know, being 40, right? 40%. And so uh, mm-hmm. we need to start talking about that, how we can get people back engaged in the political process where there's not just 35% of Chicagoans who are making a decision for our future. We need to take a break, Cam. I'm talking to um, Illinois State Representative Cam Buckner, who is also going to be on your February 28th ballot. If you live in the city of Chicago as a mayoral contender, We've been getting texts uh, from our listeners about questions they want me to ask the candidates. Another, a number of the questions have to do with police and public safety. When we come back, Cam, I'm going to try to smash all of the questions into one or two cogent thoughts that we can talk with when we come right back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. The Devil's Advocates. For those who would will flip around and find something, hell, what might be challenged, hear a different idea other than what right-wing uh, talk radio is giving you, there's a huge opportunity for the Devil's Advocates, for progressive talk, whatever, the truth, uh, because everyone, most people want the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts, but then you get over it. Then it's just normal. The Devil's Advocates, weeknights at 7 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
As part of our continuing effort to talk to the candidates who want to be the next mayor of Chicago and have them answer your concerns and your questions, today we are joined by Illinois State Representative Cam Buckner, who will be on your ballot if you live in the city of Chicago on February 28th. Cam, as I said before we went to the break, we've gotten a number of texts from people who are talking about different aspects of policing. Uh, one person wanted to know what uh, the next mayor can do uh, to help police uh, solve all the backlog of cases that um, haven't been solved. Somebody else wanted to know, you know, we know that there are bad cops, but what can we do to help the good cops uh, who can maybe make the department better? Those are just a couple of the questions that people are talking about. Basically, they seem to want to know how can we make policing smarter, more effective and more equitable? What what can you say to them? Well, I'll say this. Um, You know, when we look at the fact that we are under federal consent decree, which is a requirement from the federal government, not a suggestion, but a requirement. Uh, And currently we are at 5% compliance, 5% compliance with this decree, which means that we're 95% uh, not where we're supposed to be. Uh, And so first off, the only person in this race has had any real experience with the Department of Justice and a federal consent decree um, and a major city's police department. I I did work on this when I worked for the mayor of New Orleans. Uh, We've got a long way to go. And what this mayor and the superintendent did Instead of finding ways to um, to comply with the consent decree, they fired uh, the the employee over at CPD who was in charge uh, of this, Officer uh, Boyk, um, uh, because he said something that the, that the superintendent didn't like when it came to staffing, right? And so now we're, we're probably substantially way off track when it comes to that even that five percent that we did have. Um, we got a lot of things that we can do, but first we got to be able to to do our work um, based on consent decree requirement. Right now, I will make that happen day one. But we all, we also another question was about a backlog of cases. Um, we've got to provide our detectives with more ability to actually close cases. We've got to put more detectives uh, on the job for anybody who hasn't been on the other side uh, of a murder in this city uh, where their family members have been murdered and you're waiting for their phone call uh, to figure out what's going on with the case. I've, I've, I've had that phone call way too many times in my family. Um, and, you know, people are looking for answers. And so with a 50% clearance rate, uh, we are putting people uh, in a really bad position uh, and we're not giving them the closure that they need, right? And so we got to be able to do that. I've filed legislation in Springfield about cold cases and bringing back up cases so we can find a way to get to the bottom of them. Um, I also think that we got to create more transparency and more accountability. But back to the clearance rate specifically, um, I am going to propose uh, later on this week, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll tease it here, or I'll, I'll scoop it here, um, that the CPD gets rid of the clearance rate. Um, the clearance rate is an opaque number. Uh, it doesn't tell the real story. Clear cases are not solved cases. There can be a case that is clear today from 20 years ago, and it will be it will go on this year's clearance rate numbers. Um, also, there are a bunch of cases that have been closed with moniker of ex- exceptionally closed, uh, which means they know who did it, but they refuse. Well, for some reason, they're they're not able to go um, and and try to uh, lock these folks up and charge them. And so, listen, we need a very clear um, solved crime, solved violent crime rate numbers, so people can know what's going on, and CPD can be accountable to these numbers for the people of Chicago. 
So you're saying you think the clearance rate is an empty statistic? Yes, I mean, I think it's opaque. Right? It, it comes from the FBI. The FBI uses their rate, um, that, that rubric, um, and they do it their way for a number of reasons. But uh, FBI cases are not the same as a municipal police department. Right? There are a bunch of differences there, uh, and we've used them, and, and we've seen this administration and other administrations twist and turn the numbers to make them look better. But, listen, clearance rate cases are not closed cases. Let's have a real conversation with Chicagoans about if we're closing murders so we can bring some real closure to people, but also to find out if CPD is actually doing their job. Interesting. So if we're going to get rid of the clearance rate, how are we going to judge whether or not our police department is effective in solving crimes? I think the simplest answer is normally the right answer, Joan. Uh, if there are 797 murders in Chicago in 2021, um, the, the the rubric we put to, put together um, or the equation we put together should be how many of those cases uh, were solved. How many of that 797? This is easy math. We don't have to do the, the tough new math uh, that is, um, you know, uh, attached to clearance rates. Let's just be very clear. If in a certain calendar year, there were a certain X, X number of murders. How many of those murders were solved uh, within X amount of time? And that should give us a percentage of how we're actually solving cases in this city. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and are there other communities that that look at their statistics in the way that you want Chicago to? There, there are some who have done some internal stuff where they've not necessarily changed the entire equation, but they've uh, put those more uh, contemporaneous numbers on their dashboards, on their um, you know, comp stat is what a lot, of, a lot of police departments call it, call it uh, where there's a running tally uh, on their website to figure out what cases have been actually cleared or closed um, this year, how many people have been brought to justice. Um, and, there, and those places usually have some real coordination between the criminal justice apparatus. I, I've said this before. I think one of the big issues in Chicago is that, um, you know, uh, we've got the, the mayor and their superintendent and the chief judge and the state's attorney and the sheriff. Uh, and I don't think that they coordinate um, in a way that has been very helpful. In fact, uh, I've said that the mayor has spent so much time fighting with those other folks that she can't fight for Chicago. Um, and so um, there, there are places that do some version of this. I think we would have to tweak it to make sure it is right for Chicago, but uh, literally putting up a, a clearance rate number that's not necessarily a real picture is not helping one, create a better bond between communities and police, and two, uh, calling us to task of what we're not doing right. Interesting. That's a really interesting idea. I've never heard anybody talk about it or explain it th- that way. And, you know, I didn't realize that a crime from 20 years ago that was suddenly solved improves the clearance rate statistic as it exists today. I think when people when people see that, they assume that means if the clearance rate is 15 percent, it's 15 percent of the crimes that have been committed, you know, recently. I think there's just sort of an assumption that that's what it is, um, that uh, that's what it is reflective of. Um, Why do you think Mayor Lightfoot continues to stick with David Brown when virtually everybody else thinks he's got to go? You know, I, I don't really understand this. Uh, when you look at the numbers and you look at what's going on, you look at people in Chicago, there's one thing that's unifying most folks in the city, and that's the fact that they think that uh, this superintendent is not prepared to, to move this department in this city forward. Uh, I don't know if the mayor is keeping him as a human shield. I don't know what it is that she's doing 
Um, so people can, you know, blame him instead of blaming her on, on certain things. But we got to stop whatever is going on because it, it's not working. And, and the truth of the truth of this, John, I, I in my state rep district, I cover five separate police districts, right? And so I get to know and have gotten to know uh, everybody from beat cops to caps uh, sergeants to lieutenants to um, district commanders and deputy district commanders and, and district deputy district chiefs. And we've got some really great talent in the pipeline in CPD, in CPD. People who are from this city, who know this city, who know this department, and who know what we need to turn this thing around immediately. Uh, and so I think we're doing them a huge disservice by not uh, trying to find a new leadership within our ranks. But also, as we'll say, we're losing a generation of folks who are actually good cops. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I've got uh, family members who have decided to put down their gun and badge here and go pick up one elsewhere and, and leave Chicago because they don't feel that the department is moving in the right direction. Um, and so not only are we lo- uh, losing the people who are next up to be superintendent, but we're losing the folks who are next up after them as well, as they don't want to stay here and go to the ranks because they don't feel that there's real leadership uh, at CPD. One of the one of the criticisms of the idea of promoting from within, though, is that you know, we have this consent decree, which seems to imply that the training needs to be better and perhaps the culture needs to change at the police force. Can somebody who came up through that culture, yes, they would have maybe the respect of their fellow officers, but if you've come up through that culture, are you going to be the best person to change it? I, I think so. Uh, you know, I, I'll push back on that a little bit. Uh, because, listen, there, there are bad apples in every single profession, in every single industry. Uh, but there are also people who really want to do right and really want to get this right. And people who understand um, the institutional, I think, knowledge and background that we need to move folks forward. Listen, Joan, I'm a, spring, I'm a, I'm a politician who, who is in the state uh, capital. Uh, we know how horrible Springfield has been from an ethical standpoint. Uh, but because of that, I have to make sure that we have the strongest ethic laws uh, in, this, in, this, in this country uh, because I'm... I, I'm, I'm, I want to protect those of us who do this the right way. And so, uh, you know, I think the best the best uh, chance that we have in doing that is for, for folks who actually have been there, I've been in Springfield, uh, and I know what we need to do better. And so um, for I think the same thing applies for CBD, folks who understand the, the, the department, who know what we've done wrong in the past, who understand the history, but also have a, a vision for the future on how to fix things. I'm talking to State Representative Cam Buckner, he is one of the nine folks that you will see on your ballot if you live in the city of Chicago running to be the next mayor. We are, um, I'm, Cam, I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to ask you some quick questions, but I'm going to give you a preview of what's coming up next. Today, as a matter of fact, just about an hour ago in Crane's Chicago business, one of Mayor Lightfoot's supporters uh, wrote an op-ed uh, about how the fact that we need to stick with uh, the mayor, particularly calling out her efforts in the uh, Invest Southwest sort of program. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to read you some of that and ask you about her efforts on an Invest Southwest and other things when we come back. And in the in the few seconds we have left, it's when people texted in their questions, a lot of them got really specific. You know, we tend to be big picture. We want to talk about crime. But um, I got a lot of people texting in like, um, if the Bears leave, would you as mayor lobby the NFL for another uh, football team? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, so listen, I, I, I've been very clear about this. Um, I want the Bears to stay in Chicago. Uh, I wish the mayor would have done more in the beginning instead of kind of antagonizing them. Um, and I've also fought in Springfield to make sure that state dollars do not go 
to Arlington Heights to help uh, the Bears leave Chicago. But uh, if it's something that happens, I think that, you know, I would be open to having those conversations uh, just so folks understand the way it works. Um, the Bears would probably still get have veto power over whether or not another team can come into this market. Really? Uh, yeah, well, that's not right. There's some there's some there's some rules there in the NFL that people got to start thinking about as they think about whether or not we can get a new team. Uh, but I'll be open to doing what we have to do. But I think also we've got to be very um, intentional about what happens with Soldier Field. We've got beautiful real estate right there in the lakefront. Uh, it's underutilized today. It's a park district uh, facility. We've got to do a better job, I think, of programming that in a way that can be helpful for Chicago's future as well. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. We're going to continue our conversation with Cam Buckner. I'm going to continue to ask him your questions when we come back after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. He'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks radio program, Mega Worldwide. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking with uh, mayoral candidate, State Representative Cam Buckner. And just about an hour or so ago, one of Mayor Lightfoot's supporters published an op-ed in Crane's Chicago Business. I'm going to take out some of the puffery <laughs> and the PR, and I'm going to share with you, Mr. Buckner, uh, some of what this person writes as her accomplishments. The Lightfoot administration's signature initiative, Invest Southwest, exemplifies Mayor Lightfoot's commitment in equitable and inclusive growth that will benefit this city long after she leaves City Hall. Through this initiative, Mayor Lightfoot has helped pump $2.2 billion in investment commitments into 10 historically forgotten communities on the south and west sides. This revitalization project is reversing a trend of disinvestment that for decades has kept affordable housing, small businesses, job opportunities, and other resources and amenities out of our communities. Your reaction to that? Well, listen, I'll be very clear about this. I grew up in one of those forgotten communities, uh, and I live in one of those forgotten communities today. I don't need someone to give me a tour uh, of the south side of Chicago to show me the disinvestment. I see it every day. It's happening right outside uh, my door right now. Um, I applaud the thought process or the, the kind of the thought about Invest Southwest. But it's puffery. It is. It is. It is also. It's, it's a public relations program, and not really a real investment program. But the truth of the matter is, it's not two billion dollars. Um, it's about seven hundred and fifty-seven million dollars of, of actual work uh, that we still have not seen anything come to fruition yet. I've got a Invest Southwest quote-unquote project literally uh, about five hundred feet from my house here on Forty-third Street, and um, you know we're happy to see development, but this doesn't do what we needed to do for our communities. In fact, it is a little bit 
was very disappointing that uh, black communities uh, in, in Chicago have been asked to do so much with so little for so long that this is now supposed to be the, the, the raised bar of what uh, development looks like. If you look at the list of Invest Southwest uh, projects, there are things like putting money into a horse stable for CPD horses in South Shore. How is that going to make anybody safer? How is that going to make young people who live in that part of my district uh, feel like they're really invested in? We look at money in this city and development. Let's talk about real money. The casino itself is a $2 billion project. The Lincoln Yards project is a $7 billion project. The 78 is a $6 billion project. The one central project uh, in my neck of the woods, in my district, which I've been pushing back on, uh, is a $20 billion contract, uh, a project. And so um, to, to say that black folks should be excited by this, uh, it's just folks who are out of touch who don't know uh, this community. Uh, and and I'm, I'm disappointed that this is something that's supposed to be really moving us forward. I think it's Mr. Mark. Hmm. Talk about one central. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, just for those who don't know, one central is a proposed development uh, in between Lakeshore Drive and, and Soldier Field uh, that is supposed to uh, create a transit hub and then a mixed use, uh, both commercial and residential um, BMF of a project, a $20 billion project, which uh, $6.5 billion of that money would come from Springfield. Um, when I first got to the General Assembly, there was some legislation that was pushed through uh, to start the process of giving uh, developers $6.5 billion in state funds to move forward and, and to put it into context. It's like almost like a, a TIF for the entire state for this one project. Um, uh, I pushed back on that. There was some more chicanery that happened in Springfield where folks tried to sneak the money through, and I fought tooth and nail uh, to slow down and, and to stop what was going on. Uh, and so currently, um, uh, there has been no money given to this project uh, because I don't think that the process has been proper. I feel like they've left people in the community out and haven't talked about uh, the things that are important when you put a big project like that in somebody's backyard. And so uh, I think there's an RFP out right now for a feasibility study, which I hope will give us um, some fair third-party analysis of whether or not this should even move forward. Uh, but I'll continue to fight for my constituents because you can't you can't have development happen to people. It has to happen with people. And secondly, you can't leave Illinois taxpayers on the hook or for something like this, especially when we're having a hard time even paying to educate our young people and to make our people safe. You said that there's a you're going to look at this feasibility study. But my sense is from the people I've talked to and the neighbors in that area, that it's not an idea that seems to have much support outside of City Hall, specifically outside of the mayor's office. Is that your sense? It is my sense. And listen, and I've been I've, even before the mayor became mayor, uh, I was fighting about this uh, in the beginning of, of 2019 uh, when, when it first came to my, to my desk. Uh, and I have not heard the support from people in the community. There are some folks from outside the community who have come to me and said that they support it. Uh, and, and there are also folks who have told me to trade lightly uh, fighting a developer that's able to put forth a $20 billion contract. But Jonah, I'm in this role for a reason. Uh, I do this work for people for a reason. Uh, and I'll continue to fight uh, for the right things for the people I represent. In other words, uh, tread lightly. You don't want to offend somebody with uh, deep donor pockets? Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I've heard. Uh, but as I said in the beginning of this segment, uh, I've been uh, the underdog my entire life, John, and I'm not scared to fight when it's right. And so uh, I'll continue to make sure that, that the people who I represent, that their voices are heard, and that we don't write these folks a um, blank check or a $6.5 billion check uh, 
to to you know build whatever it is that they're trying to build without um, real accountability to the people who live there. Well, uh, speaking of not necessarily accountability, but um, working um, <laughs> working with other uh, political entities, it kind of my listeners kind of feel that uh, the whole announcement that there was going to be a NASCAR race seems to have been done in consultation with no one except perhaps NASCAR. And uh, one of the things that one of my listeners wanted me to ask each of the candidates is, what do you think of the fact that we're bringing a NASCAR race to Chicago? And what do you think of the way it happened? Yeah, I think it's been heavy handed and haphazard. I think uh, this administration continues to show that they have no regard for the people of Chicago, for the residents of Chicago, uh, and they don't want their input. And, and so one thing I've said is that as mayor of Chicago, I will stop uh, treating uh, the people of Chicago like they are my subjects, which is what the mayor has done, and stop treating the city council like they are uh, her employees, uh, which they're not. She needs to be working with the city council. I represent uh, Grand Park, and so NASCAR is going to rip right straight through my state representative district. And I know that the older people in that area uh, were not apprised of this. They didn't get uh, the respect from the mayor to talk through this, right? And so um, I, I think it's extremely problematic that we have these convert that we that we were talking about this and we didn't have a real conversation. And people ask, so maybe you know, what what does a what would have a, a real conversation have done? Well, I think it would have laid bare some of the issues, right? Some some of the issues with pollution um, that, that I've talked to the Illinois IEPA um, about dealing with, some of the issues with uh, traffic and congestion and safety, um, about all of the overtime and the first responder uh, resources that we're going to need there. There can be other places in the city, especially if we have a shortage uh, around here. And then just little things like um, if you talk to anybody who runs a museum and the museum campus, the field museum, the aquarium, the planetarium, They'll tell you how tough it is for them uh, to make their numbers during a lot of Palooza, right? Because they're pretty much cut off from the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so you add this on top of that, it's going to be another week or two of, of uh, problems for, for them and, and, and problems for Chicago once to get to these institutions. We just got to have a real conversation about how we move forward. Um, and I think that this NASCAR deal um, was, was extremely unilateral, extremely hand-handed, and I'm disappointed that the mayor moved forward this way. I haven't read about this lately. I'm sure as the race itself approaches, we're going to be reading about this kind of thing nonstop. But there are reports that the Art Institute not only feels that it's going to have to close its doors during this race, but that because of the vibration uh, that they may actually have to transport a significant amount of their art to another location to keep it safe, to keep it from being damaged. Has anybody talked about those kinds of problems and those kinds of costs? Yeah, so I hadn't heard that, but it makes plenty of sense to me. And the truth of the matter is that when we have an actual open, transparent process, these things come to light because there's no way that any one person can think through um, you know, all of the contingencies and all of the issues that, that may happen. Uh, but if you bring it to the public, which this mayor promised to do by bringing it in the light, uh, then we're able to have those conversations. And unfortunately, uh, she's reneged on that promise. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that's that's unfortunate. This thing, and none of us know the real numbers on, on how much it's supposed to bring in, but it's already seemed like it's going to cost Chicago more than it's worth. Well, it was, that was my next question to you. If you've seen any numbers, I mean, obviously the whole point is to bring uh, tourism 
to the city of Chicago, fill up those hotels. But have you seen any numbers? I mean, I've seen the at least the projected course and people are already talking about, I mean, forget about the Art Institute having to close its doors and move some of its art away to protect it. I mean, the the damage that could be done to Grant Park itself. Has there been any analysis of that? And also, one other thing, I don't know if you saw this, um, the first draft of where the course would be. I don't know much about NASCAR, Cam, um, but... The course, as I originally saw it, has two 90-degree right turns. How does that work when you're supposed to be going 100 miles an hour? What do you stop and signal? And then, you know, I just, I, I have a lot of questions about this, Mr. Buckner. Yeah, no, you, you didn't strike me as a NASCAR fan, so I'm glad that I <laughs> um, But uh, I, I don't know. There's, there's still more questions than answers uh, about how it's going to work physically and logistically. Um, and uh, also... As you said, what the numbers look like, I can guarantee you NASCAR has a good picture of what they're going to get out of this because if not, a big business like this wouldn't have moved forward. But the people of Chicago have no idea what we're going to get out of it and what it's going to cost us. We know, once again, how much Alapalooza costs us every year for cleanup. Um, mm-hmm. We know how much it costs us in resources when it comes to uh, our our, um, our first responders and police and fire and ambulance, uh, EMS uh, resources. Uh, we have not been told, we have not been given a chance to get an understanding of what this means for Chicago, uh, which is is wholly disappointing. I, I would put this up there uh, with the overnight uh, bulldozing of Meg's Field and the parking meter deal. Uh, and I will thing. never forgive Mayor Daly for that. I loved yeah, Meg's right. Field. <laughs> and, and, and listen, it's just, this is, once again, unilateral um, uh, kind of monarch type of administration that doesn't work for the people of Chicago. I'm speaking to State Representative Cam Buckner. He is one of the nine candidates running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We're going to take a break and be back with one more segment with him right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I am speaking with Illinois State Representative Cam Buckner. He is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Okay, Cam, these questions are pouring in. This one is kind of a multi-part question, so I'm going to read the whole thing here. TIF funding, are you for reforming or ending this program? Isn't the county city tax, aren't, I think, the county city taxpayers providing a banking function for developers? Shouldn't the government role in this program be to act as a liaison between bankers, community, and developers for much-needed development projects? TIF funding, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What do you think, Mr. Buckner? Yeah, listen, we, we have to absolutely change the tax increment financing system uh, in this city. When we look at the true spirit of TIF and when it was passed in 1983 uh, at the state level, what we were supposed to be doing, um, we have uh, ex- we have we have um, created some uh, really weird version of that today. It's not doing what it's supposed to do, right? Um, we know uh, that there are way too many communities that have 
that should be benefiting from tests that not that, that are not. And the, the reason that Invest Southwest even looks uh, like a successful program from the outside in is because uh, tests have not worked for these communities, right? And so we've got to change it. We I have called for true TIF reform for sunsetting uh, the tests that no longer need to exist in places that have now been completely developed. Um, and to uh, make sure we're doing the right thing, because not only are we providing a banking function for developers, and I think that caller, uh, the texter, is absolutely right, uh, but we also have to realize that we're uh, keeping money away from our schools when we do this. Right? These are dollars that should be going to CPS uh, in a way that can help to educate our young people and put them on, on the path to be successful in the global, the global economy. And so, uh, listen, we need to perform. We need it like yesterday. Uh, but that, that will be one of the first things I begin to do as mayor of Chicago and uh, as the only person in this race who can, I think, hit the ground running on day one in Springfield based on my relationships in this current version of the state capitol with uh, the governor, the speaker, and the Senate president. Uh, I think we can get that done uh, in short order. Another question that we got in here was on uh, the lack of affordable, safe, decent housing and programs to house the unhoused. Um, There has been a measure bandied about in city council that hasn't gone too far right now that would raise the percentage of uh, money collected off the real estate transfer tax, raising the rate for properties of a million dollars or more, and then taking that money and making it a dedicated fund to perhaps create more housing or more shelter beds. Your thoughts on that program or other ideas you have for solving this problem? So, yeah, there are 65,000 unhoused people in Chicago. 20,000 of those are young people of school age. And so we've got a real issue. We've got a real problem that we got to address. So the Bring Chicago Home initiative that you're talking about, Joan, which is a um, uh, 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 something that's been put forward by the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, uh, I agree with it. I support it. Um, in fact, it's not. it can't be passed at the city level. It has to be passed in Springfield. Uh, and when Mayor Lightfoot came to Springfield three years ago asking us to raise the real estate transfer tax, um, I was one of the state reps who stood up and refused to because she had no plan on where the money was going to go. Uh, and so, you know, once that cat was out of the bag, it was going to be a problem. And so we said no until you figure out um, a real clear plan for uh, housing and security in Chicago, which she still has not done, so we have not raised that tax. But I will go to Springfield to ask for the real estate transfer tax on transactions of a million dollars or more to be raised, and I think we can get that done. I've already gotten the support from my colleagues in Springfield today uh, to do that, but we've got to be very specific about where we put that money. And so uh, I have a plan for putting $20 million of that into single-family rehabs uh, in currently distressed neighborhoods, another 20 to $40 million towards gap financing for new affordable uh, multi-family housing um, in Chicago, uh, another $10 million uh, towards uh, funding of re- uh, rehab for affordable multi-family properties via a program called the Trouble Building Initiatives, which exists today but does not have the money that it needs. Um, I've also talked about spending between 10 and $15 million to expand the city's network of non-congregate uh, homeless shelters, uh, another $20 million for new permanent supportive housing, and another 10 to $20 million for uh, reviving the New Homes for Chicago program uh, to create uh, affordable dwelling units on vacant city land. We've got to do all that. We've got to also uh, make sure the CHA and the, and the housing department are working together. And what I've called for is that in the Buckner administration, I will have a person in City Hall that is specifically tasked with affordable housing in Chicago. We're going to do all the work to make Chicago the most affordable housing-friendly city in America. 
Kim Buckner is one of three candidates that is going to be at the hideout tonight. Um, as a matter of fact, we probably have to let him go pretty fast because he'll need to get over there. Indivisible Chicago, our good friends Marge Halpern and Tom Moss are going to be talking to Cam, Chewy Garcia, and Brandon Johnson. They want Indivisible Chicago wants to bring a special spotlight on the candidates that they who they feel are the most progressive candidates. Would you say that's a fair label? Do you do you mind that label? Some people don't know whether or not they you know they're more comfortable with progressive or call me a moderate or middle of the road person. Um, do you mind being called a progressive in this context? Uh- I don't. I don't mind. I think the the, the core of of the ethos of progressivism is uh, folks who believe in moving us forward, right, and who believe in progress. And I have a record, right? I've got a voter record. I've got a, a record of things I've sponsored, uh, and my record makes me extremely progressive, right, when it comes to actually getting stuff done, not just from an ideological standpoint, but from from the actions that I've been able uh, to lead on in Springfield. And so I'm happy. Uh, I've told folks that uh, you know I've, I've created some nuances by by calling myself a pro business progressive, which I am. Uh, someone who believes that that growth can help us uh, get where we need to go socially as well. But um, no, I don't mind the label at, at all. I'll take it. Um, we have. Um, <laughs> I I don't think that there's much that can be done about this. But one of our listeners texted in: um, Will the tax breaks given to Trump Tower negotiated by Ed Burke be rescinded? <laughs> I don't know that you have the power to do that, but. <laughs> Hey, well, I, I think I'm grateful for that question because um, what one thing that I've been very clear about is that uh, there are things that we that we truly believe may be irreversible uh, that I want to take a look at uh, as soon as the transition begins, uh, including the, the Trump Tower tax breaks, including what we can do, um, you know, from a practical standpoint to recoup some of that money uh, in the um, in the parking meter deal. Right. I mean, the, if people look at that deal, uh, they'll see that the only thing that's really missing is an escalator clause. A clause that says, if you make this much money, you know, at this by this point in time, then the whole deal changes. Um, I'm not sure we can add that in there. I'm not sure what else we can do, but I think we got to look at ways we can um, can can kind of go back and change some of the things that we think are unchangeable. I think we've got to be bold and creative and find a way forward. Mm-hmm. Along those same lines, I know we don't have a whole lot of time left, and this is really a done deal, but a lot of our listeners wanted to know about, they wanted me to ask the mayoral candidates whether or not you fully support the idea of a casino in Chicago. Again, it's already done. It's in the works. The contracts are signed. I'm not sure that you could undo it even if you wanted to, but how do you feel about that? So I voted for the casino uh, in Springfield. Uh, I also voted for... Uh, the reconfiguration of the effective tax rate there because the first version of the bill uh, didn't do, I think, what the city needed it to do. Um, and I'm not regretful about that vote. What I, what I am, what is problematic is that if I knew that this mayor was going to um, operate the same way she did with NASCAR but without uh, bringing people in to have a conversation, I may not have voted for it. Um, you know, I assume that she would bring the, the local older folks and, and, and the people in the community in. Uh, I don't have a problem with the casino in Chicago. My problem is the location. Uh, I think we, we're very, we've been very clear about making sure that the casino has to be able, has to be there where people can get to work from all across the city, but that it's not preying on Chicagoans, uh, that it's easy for tourists to come to, uh, and that we're not just uh, pulling more money out of the pocket for people who don't, who can't afford it. And then lastly, just from an infrastructure and development standpoint, um, I think both the temporary casino location and the permanent 
uh, casino locations are a bad idea from an infrastructure standpoint, from a congestion standpoint. Uh, it's going it's going to make things more difficult for people who live in those communities. And those are communities, right? Uh, it's downtown, it's River North, it's River West. People don't often uh, respect that. But these are communities and neighborhoods that people live in. Lady B, I don't hear Cam. Oh, I'm here. Oh, good, here. good. You dropped out for a second. I got scared. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. Um, if you would like to hear more from uh, State Representative Cam Buckner, get your behind over to the hideout. The festivities start at 5 o'clock. Each of the three candidates is going to be interviewed for 30 minutes. And if you can't make it to the hideout, you should know that this Saturday... At 4 o'clock, following Edwin Eisendrath's radio show, we are going to play. We're going to record what happens tonight, and we are going to play it on our radio station this Saturday at 4 o'clock. All of the Cam Buckner goodness here on WCPT. Cam, thank you so much for the time and the conversation. Thank you so much. Have a great week. You too. We are going to take a break. We are going to bring you some news at the top of the hour And then we are going to be talking to another of the candidates who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago, asking her some of these same questions and other questions that you text in to us, 773-763-9278. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. As we get closer to February 28th, it is our mission here at WCPT to bring you each and every one of the mayoral candidates in a one-on-one discussion that you, the listener, can be a part of. In the next hour, you can call us or text us 773-763-WCPT. For those of you who aren't numerically challenged, it's 773-763-9278. You can call us on that line. You can text me on that line. And I know some of you are emailing me questions. I will also try, at least during the breaks, uh, to check the email and see what is coming through that direction as well. I am very pleased to welcome for this hour Alderwoman Sophia King, who is one of the names that you will find on your ballot February 28th, if you live in the city of Chicago. She is running to be the next mayor. Uh, Sophia, thank you so much for joining us. Joan, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the time. Thank you. I've talked to a lot of people over the years um, running for various offices, and I know that the closer it gets to Election Day, the busier you get. Um, How long are your days right now, and do you ever get any time off? (laughs) Uh, that's a good question. My birthday was actually a couple of days ago, and I had a nice dinner and, and watched a movie with my husband <laughs> for, for about two hours. I took off. Um, so that was nice. But, you know, it's good getting out, people, getting our message out. The more our message uh, gets out, the more it resonates with people. So I'm energized by the last uh, less than two weeks of, 
time left that we have until the 28th. So we're excited to get our commercial up and running and uh, resonating with people. So we feel good about where we are. But yes, it is. It is pretty hectic. I was just talking about how at the hideout tonight, Indivisible Chicago invited three candidates uh, they have deemed to be progressives in this race. Do you consider yourself progressive? Do you consider yourself moderate or conservative? What kinds of labels would you put on yourself and and why? You know, I try not to label myself, but I, you know, I am chair of the city council's progressive caucus. Um, you know, I think uh, there are, you know, times uh, that I um, feel more progressive and times where I, you know, feel more like a moderate. But I, I, I think, you know, uh, the word progressive has been taken um, out of context and people use it for different things. But for me, it means, you know, really to uh, be the first to really stand up for um, you know, the most marginalized uh, people. And, and that's what I feel uh, being a progressive is. And so in that regard, yes, you know, I am. You know, I've been very an uh, advocate for uh, the most marginalized, you know, whether it's, you know, leading the fight for $15 minimum wage or trying to bring, you know, real equity and parity and contracts and, and kind of everything that we do um, in that Vein, I would consider myself uh, progressive, but I think people have different ideas of, of what it means. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I um, I've been getting texts when people have been texting in questions and, well, you know, one of the big debates, anytime I think a description, an adjective is used awfully frequently, it has a tendency to become meaningless or it has a specific meaning for each person using the word. And um, progressive, I think, is one of those words that has become a little bit mushy at, at this point. You know, sometimes it's yeah. a badge of honor. Sometimes it's something to attack somebody over. But even in those instances, you know, what exactly does somebody mean by that? You say that, you know, you talked about uh, the fight for 15 and some of the other things that you've done um, to help some of the people who don't have a lot of power and don't have a lot of money? What are some of those other efforts right. that you have made? Yeah, so, you know, the fight for a $15 minimum wage, you know, uh, mostly impacted black and brown uh, women, um, you know, giving about 400,000 people a pay raise and, you know, about 100,000 lifting them out of poverty, uh, you know, and I've, I've um, in the microbiome development, you know, for you know, hang on a second. I do want to talk to you specifically about the Michael Reese development. We're having a little bit of problem with your audio. Uh, Lady B, okay. let's take a break right now and see if we can reestablish a better line with Sophia King. Um, we're going to be right back with better sound right after this. 
A family meeting. Breaking news. McRib is back. Oh, my gosh. And they got the nerve to say, get it while it's yeah, last. Last, last. They always say that. <laughs> right. like, they always say that. Like and really I never miss it. it. I don't know if people are even buying it. The dude who created McRib wow. must have had dirty pictures on somebody because they should have fired his or her ass a long time ago. say, listen, I want this in the menu and I want my cut. Right. Because I saw what you did with your nasty line. The family meeting. Sundays, 4 to 6 p.m. is sponsored by Identity Guard. Protect your identity for as little as $6 per month. Visit lookaftermyid.com. WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And we are joined by Alderwoman Sophia King. She is leaving the city council to attempt to become the next mayor of the city of Chicago. She is saying goodbye. Well, for now, to the fourth ward as uh, as she pursues higher office. And she joins us now uh, to talk about her campaign. Um, Sophia, talk to me about some of the older people and others who've endorsed your campaign. Yeah, so we've had uh, David Moore, um, who has endorsed our campaign. Um, we've had... Um, Cook County uh, Democratic women who have endorsed our campaign. Um, and then we're hoping for, obviously, a bunch of voters uh, to endorse our campaign. And so, um, yeah, we at the end of the day, you know, it will be the voters who decide who's going uh, to be the next mayor. But we're, mm-hmm. we're happy to have um, Alderman uh, David Moore is my only colleague to have endorsed our campaign right now. Um, a lot of folks sitting on the sidelines waiting. Um, but again, you know, it will be up to the voters, uh, the city of Chicago to decide who's going to be the next mayor. And we know that our message is resonating with folks, uh, the message and the power of, and, you know, a lot of folks, um, you know, a lot of narratives on the fringe are controlling, um, the messages and those, that's just really not where the majority of people uh, uh, stand. You know, some of my competitors want to defund the police and others want law and order. And, and we understand that most people understand that we can both uplift police and hold them accountable, uh, that we can have safety and justice, which is why we have a plan, a comprehensive plan that puts, you know, more police in all of the communities, but also, um, gets to violence intervention in a very meaningful way and also looks at alternative responses to policing um, and trying to debunk the narrative that other folks are saying about the police and about, you know, how we can get to safety and justice. Where are you going to find those other police and how are you going to fund them? We're yeah. down. I mean, by some estimates, we're down sixteen, seventeen hundred officers from what is considered um, optimal staffing. Yeah. So the beauty of my plan is that it won't cost us another dime uh, to do it. So we are recommending that you go from three shifts to two shifts. So, for example, if you have 90 officers in one police district, and you have three shifts, that's 30 officers a shift, you can go to two shifts, and that would be 45 officers per shift, 
That's up to 50% more officers. In times like this, we need ideas. And it's not unique. Other big cities do this. They have four days off. I mean, four days on and three days off. So officers get the net, the rest uh, that they need, mental care that they need. Um, and they're still working a 40-hour week, but they're working 10-hour days. And so you go from three shifts to two shifts. You get up to 50% more officers. Uh, on a shift, and that's up to 50% more officers in the communities, in all of our communities where they belong. We're also saying bring back retired officers, like New York does. New York has 4,000 retired officers. We're calling, them, we're, we're calling them the Chicago Reserve. So you can get up to, we're asking for 1,000 officers to come back, and how they would be paid is you're right. There's at least 1,600 vacancies. There's probably more because officers are leaving faster than we can keep them. And those 1,600 vacancies, we can pay uh, retired officers uh, part-time. They already have their their pension. They already have their health care. And so we're paying them. And they can be put in areas like detectives. I would try and bring detectives back first so they can solve all these murders, our clearance rates are some of the lowest in the country, or they can go to festivals on the lake or, or on our CTA uh, platforms. Uh, but those are um, officers that can be ready to go right away and, and changing, going from a four-day on, three-day off uh, work shift would also give us up to 50% more. We have to be thinking about things like this with all of the unwieldy crime that's going on. But we also have to get at violence intervention. Um, and so we also have a plan that would put hundreds of millions of dollars into violence intervention. Again, we can pay for those uh, with federal funds right now that will run out in several years. However, we should have put a dent in the issue, uh, but we're call, calling for giving incentives uh, to some of our most vulnerable folks uh, likely to be shot or to shoot. And to bring wraparound services. So with the incentive would come the responsibility of job training, of, uh, you know, trauma-informed care, wraparound services for the family. But we're asking for a community approach uh, to intervening in individuals who are going down the wrong path and bringing the local clergy, uh, the local commander, Um, and other stakeholders in the community to sit down with individuals to say, listen, we know you're going on this path. We're going to wrap our arms around you, give you incentives to stay off of the street, um, and give you job training and all the things you need to be a productive citizen. And so we have to do more of that. We have some great programs out there, but they just don't have the money to scale up. Unfortunately, we had $85 that we gave to uh, this mayor in 2022, and she didn't even get $5 million of it out of the door. And so if it's a priority, you have to make sure that those resources get to where they're needed. And we just haven't done that in a meaningful way, which is the, part of the reason I didn't uh, vote for this past budget. <laughs> We're like, we set you up with this great budget to get to our priorities, and none of those got out the door. And so um, that's one thing I would do. And also alternative forms. Um, to policing. We know that, you know, over 50% of calls to 911 are for nonviolent issues like homeless insecurities, like um, um, 
mental health insecurities and, and other insecurities around poverty, um, police are not trained to respond to those, nor should they. And so we can have folks who are trained in mental health and other clinicians to respond to those things. And it's a win-win and police can do what they're trained to do. We actually have pilot programs in, in several of the police districts right now that me and other colleagues um, help to start. Um, but those too need to be escalated. They need to have more resources put into them. Again, we actually earmarked money for those and those um, programs have not been escalated. Uh, so there are a lot of things that we can do and we have the resources uh, to pay for those. But immediately, you know, I said to the mayor that she should implement this plan right away, especially changing uh, the shifts. Uh, other cities do it. Um, they don't even, you know, call it three shifts or two shifts. They just work four days on, three days off, so that, again, officers uh, can be in more communities at once, um, and also they can get the rest that they need as well. So you said that this idea of uh, working on these kinds of shifts is an idea that, that has been presented to the mayor? Yeah, I've, I've told her she should, she should run with it. You know, um, we actually do it in the fifth police district now. Um, and, and like I said, other big cities do that. But now's the time where we need we need that, you know, type of of um, I wouldn't even say it's innovative, but, you know, it's something that we can do right now as we're mm-hmm. losing more officers than we keep. We can, you know, um, make sure that we've got the bodies that we need, especially uh, during now, um, because uh, as everybody knows, it, it's gotten out of hand. And so we need ideas like this to make sure that our city uh, continues um, to uh, make people feel safe and, uh, you know, that we provide uh, protection and service. You know, so, um, David Brown did appear uh, at least once or twice uh, before the city council was um, were any of these ideas brought directly to him at that point, or was he just there to answer questions? Yeah, so at that point, I hadn't um, done the research on on uh, the shift change and all of those things, but I did bring to his attention, you know, about my uh, police district um, and how I felt that we didn't have enough officers. Um, and so that's always been something, you know, that I've brought uh, to him. Um, and, of course, you know, serving as alderman, that's what I was concerned about uh, specifically is making sure uh, that we had officers. But, you know, especially the second police district, I represent the first police district, which is downtown and also the second uh, police district, which is further south. And I see the disparities there and I see you know, that we just don't have the officers where we need them. Um, you know, not two weeks ago, I, I had a community call 911 because they saw young men carrying guns um, and, and nobody came, uh, you know, and, and to find out later that the beat officers were, were pulled somewhere else. And so there was no service there for uh, that particular community at that time. Um, so we, we can't continue to do things like that. Um, and no. we have solutions out there uh, to get at the immediacy of this. Um, and so, yes, I think this is something we can do right away. Um, you know, you, you uh, had me on before, Joan, and, you know, you know that we've got an 18-page, 10-point uh, plan, and they're all doable ideas. These aren't, you know, kind of 
pull a rabbit out your hat trick idea, mm-hmm. ideas that are very doable um, and that have been vetted, you know, talk to former superintendents, uh, other rank and file, just about these ideas. Um, and yeah, they're ones that we can do right away. So a lot of the candidates, if not all of the candidates running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago, all agree on one thing, and that is that they would replace David Brown. The question is, replace him with whom? Um, do you feel that David Brown, if you would as mayor replace him, should be replaced by somebody within the department or somebody who is brought in as a fresh set of eyes from outside the department? No, I, I, I um, first of all, it, it isn't, you know, personal. Um, you know, he seems like a nice guy, uh, affable guy, but I just think he's lost the, the trust um, of the rank and file and, you know, really didn't know our city well. Chicago is a really um, unique place uh, with lots of neighborhoods and different communities, and, and you really have to understand the city. And so I, I would definitely um, hire somebody from within the ranks, somebody, you know, who understands the city. Um, who has the respect of, you know, the rank and file um, and could, um, you know, really raise morale, um, you know, really um, make this a place where other officers uh, want to uh, come to or new recruits want to come. Um, So, you know, that's what I'm looking for, somebody who can really uh, lead, you know, our police department into the next um, era. Uh, because mm-hmm. right now there's a lot of there's a lot of low morale. Um, you know, arrests are down 75 percent. You know, crime is up 30 percent over the last four years. I know it's dropped slightly, um, but uh, you know we really have to get it under control. And so those are just you know some of the things that I would do right away. And like I said, uh, most of them are doable. I'd also you know, look at just engagement of our youth. Um, you know, there's no reason why uh, K through 12, we shouldn't have um, strong, what I would call co-curricular programs. And most people would say after school programming uh, to make sure that our youth are engaged uh, all the time. And that's something that I would do, um, you know, across the board, K through 12, making sure uh, that there are opportunities for young people to stay engaged after school. Um, as well as in school. There's so many disengaged youth, and I think that's part of the issue. Um, and I would bring the trades as well as um, tech programs back into the school, um, you know, work with the union uh, to start apprentice programs uh, while our young people are still in schools as opposed to after they're in school um, and expose them to not only the trades but to the tech industry and jobs of the future. Um, those are other ways, I think, you know, it's kind of like an ecosystem. Education will impact safety and, and vice versa. And so these are things and approaches that I would take as well. Um, we don't we've only got about a minute left before we have to take a break. But what do you see as the single big, biggest reason why it is taking so long to implement the consent decree? I really just don't think the political will is there. I, I, um, you know, I, I would have fired the proud boy and, and not the guy who's over the consent decree, who was very well respected. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, he was, he was trying to bring, you know, more resources so that 
so that we could uh, start to fulfill, um, you know, all of the different obligations uh, that we have under the consent decree. And so, you know, that to me um, was a strong message that was sent uh, around the consent decree. And, and, and it's important, uh, you know, the police and community relationship is, is super important. Um, you know, we're not under a consent decree for no reason at all. Uh, there's all types of, of uh, cultural um, uh, hurdles uh, that we have to overcome in the police department and training and, and, you know, other issues that we need to make sure uh, that we implement. Uh-huh. And so, again, you know, firing uh, the officer who was well-respected, who was over that consent decree, uh, sent the wrong message. Um, and and then not firing the proud boy, you know, sent a whole other message. And so um, I, I would say it's the political will. I mean, this is something that, you know, if if we really want to get done, we have to put the resources towards it and to do it in earnest. Um, and not, you know, just when people are, are, uh, uh, you know, up for election or yeah. under scrutiny. We are going to take a break. I'm speaking with Alderwoman Sophia King. She is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We are going to continue to ask her your questions. Feel free to text them in when we come right back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are talking with Alderman Sophia King. She is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Um, one of the questions that our listeners have texted in that I ask uh, a, lot, a lot of the candidates here is sort of, would you at any point, I mean, we've, there's been polling, you know, generally, Sophia, you're not in the top five. It also, I know, must make it difficult to raise money. Um, the listener question is, would you at some point consider withdrawing from the race and throwing your support to a different candidate, either now or if you uh, are not the one of the top two after February 28th? Yeah. So, you know, right now, you know, I'm focused on, you know, making sure uh, we get into a runoff. I know, you know, that there are a lot of polls out there. Everybody has one. I think it's interesting, you know, which ones, you know, people choose to report on and which ones they don't. I saw the latest poll that, you know, showed us at 5%, but it also showed us at 5% before we were up on TV. Um, and it showed, you know, everybody else has spent millions of dollars. We have a poll that puts us in the runoff um, after our message is heard. Our message is just starting um, to be heard. Uh, so, you know, I'd love to see, you know, what it says. Uh, we'll, we would have been up on, on TV a week uh, this evening. And so that poll was done um, a long time ago. Uh, but like I said, everybody has a poll. Um, but the biggest poll... Uh, will come, you know, election day and as people vote, uh, that's the poll 
and and the one thing all of the polls had in common was about 20% of people are undecided. And uh-huh. we know uh, that the undecideds move our way. Uh, we not only did polling, but we did focus groups, which are even, you know, more um, specific Um and uh, we had 99% of folks, after hearing our message, move our way. And so that's what we're excited about. And, and really, as you know, Joan, um, the biggest poll is on Election Day. But yep. we don't, you know, even have to go back that far. And in 2019, you know, uh, as of February 6th, uh, you know, uh, the mayor was at 3%. Uh, and so, um, you know, like I said, I, you know, I've seen people... Uh, in this race, go up and come down and go up and come down. And I think we're rising steadily and uh, you'll be surprised we'll be uh, in the runoff. Um, And I think our message, like I said, is getting out uh, to more people on on commercial now. And um, when people hear our message, uh, they tend to come our way. I think people want new leadership. Uh, They want uh, somebody who's going to bring our city together um, um, you know, I have the track record um, over the last six and a half years of doing just that, collaborating with people, but not just collaborating, but getting difficult things done. If you look at my track record, you know, I've done it in such a way where I've brought people together, we've moved, you know, systems forward and moved people forward and gotten things done. And that's, I think, the type of leadership that we need right now, especially with all of the dissension. Um, the instability um, after COVID, I think people are looking uh, for somebody who can who can bring us together. And, and look, I, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge what a difficult time it is to lead as a public servant myself. I know how difficult a time it was, you know, during COVID, during social unrest. Uh, but I think I know what this mayor missed is an opportunity to bring us all together. Instead, there's dissension between the teachers and the police and the business community and everyone. And, and people need the stability and look to leadership uh, to bring us together. And I think that was a true missed opportunity. And um, I think it's gotten us to where we are right now. And so, you know, I'm looking to really, you know, bring that collaborative style of uh, getting things done. And, and, you know, with 16 of my colleagues leaving, uh, you know, we really don't need somebody who's flying the plane and building it at the same time. Again, we need somebody who understands how the sausage is made. We, you know, we kind of just did that and it didn't work out well. Um, and I bring that. And I, but I also bring a vision of how, you know, our city can be. Um, but, but not just a vision, you know, somebody who's actually done, whether it's like you said, like we said earlier, that was fight for $15 minimum wage. That wasn't easy, uh, but we brought, you know, of activists and adversaries alike to the table and, and really got that done. And now we know it, it wasn't enough. Um, um, but, you know, and whether it's that or the Michael Reese project, um, you know, there's four striking developments in the city of Chicago, uh, the 78 Lincoln Yards of the Obama Library and Michael Reese. And we were the only ones who didn't have distinction. We're also the only ones that really showed how a developer and the community can see an upside with the $25 million commitment to schools, you know, a 20% commitment to affordable housing on site, a 60% commitment to minority participation. You know, that's the type of leadership that, you know, I'll bring to the fifth floor. Um, that's the type of 
development uh, process that we need where we brought the community and other stakeholders together and really sought to understand what the community wanted and then sat down with the developer and articulated that. And the developer articulated what they wanted and needed. And we really had grown people go into the room and come out with solutions. That's what the city of Chicago is looking for. Well, and along those lines, that I'll bring. I know one of the things that you're really proud of is the negotiations around Weiss. Uh, talk about that, what you did and how it came about. The negotiations around Michael Reese? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Reese. Did I say Weiss? <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah. Yes. That's okay. Um, so, yeah, so we did something, you know, that was unheard of at the time. We we sought to bring an advisory council together. And so, you know, we uh, sought out, you know, 25 or so people who lived in the community and around the community and around the city, experts in different areas, whether they're architects or, you know, business folks or bankers or lawyers, all at the table um, to really uh, talk about, you know, what this development would look look like. Um, And all of those folks sat down, you know, with people of the city as well as the developer and, you know, really came up with, you know, this mixed-use development, um, you know, that would have housing and, uh, commercial space and um, and uh, small businesses and just really a, a viable and strong community. Uh, but we talked about it, you know, in detail and, and you know, we believed in, in community benefits for the community. We really, you know, thought ahead about uh, the performa so that small businesses, you know, we could, uh, their uh, leases could be written down. Um, you know, we talked about you know, what the community wanted. And so, you know, we're also going to have, a, you know, the Bronzeville Museum there. Um, so, but it, it was really, uh, you know, something that took time and it was intentional. Um, and, but, you know, we spent a lot of time on the front end, so we didn't have to spend a lot of time on the back end with people protesting or not happy with, you know, what was going on. And, and again, like I said, you know, we came out, what with what the New York Times is calling one of the most equitable developments in the country. Um, and so, yes, I'm, I'm very proud of that. But it, it was a process of, again, collaboration um, and, you know, working together, bringing people together uh, to get things done. And, uh, and yes, I'm, I'm definitely proud of, of that effort and all of the people who were around that effort as well um, who helped us. Uh, bring this remarkable uh, plan um, or helping to bring it to fruition. We have uh, a number of questions that people have texted in. Be- before we go to the next break, though, I'm going to ask you a couple of the a uh, couple of the quick ones. Um, how do you feel about the NASCAR race planned for downtown Chicago? NASCAR, uh, another thing where, where the mayor's going really fast alone and, and you know, hoping it doesn't, uh, she doesn't crash and burn. I think she already did. But, um, yeah, I, again, I mean, that's something where it would behoove you to talk to at least the city council people who represent that area to talk about what the concerns and the hurdles are. Um, but it's also, you know, not a great deal. Um, you know, half a million dollars. Uh, for, uh, you know, two weeks of time uh, that interrupts 
you know, a lot of business and, and other things in the city, uh, you know, I would have told her at least that. I mean, I know Lollapalooza's deal um, is a lot uh, better for the city and, and it's a lot less time. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what the end goal um, is here uh, with a deal that, that really doesn't net the uh, city a lot of money um, and that, you know, it's a lot of interruption and, and, and no collaboration, you know, with folks on the ground who know the community and know, um, you know, what their concerns are. And so, um, you know, while it sounds, you know, exciting in, in isolation, those are things, you know, that I would, I would have thought to do uh, a better, um, you know, really just having a collaborative effort to make sure that we hear concerns and to make sure that this is something that not only is financially uh, fruitful for the city, but is worth, you know, the money mm-hmm. uh, that we're getting. You uh, touched briefly on something that has been uh, a recurring complaint about our current mayor, and that is not only that she's not collaborative, but that she is um Oh, gosh, what's the opposite? Uh, uh, combative. Um, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. I'm going to share with you some of the things that Tom Tunney said when I spoke with him earlier this week. Uh, but right now we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with uh, Alder Sophia King running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I am joined by Alderman Sophia King. She currently represents the 4th Ward. She is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. She will be on your ballot if you live in the city when you go to the polls February 28th. Also, you're welcome to early vote. You know, Sophia, I've heard so far that the early voting numbers are really high. This looks to be an election that people are really interested in. Uh, but I wanted to revisit what we what we touched on before we went to break. Yesterday, I spoke with Tom Tunney and uh, we talked about many things, uh, but also the fact that perhaps because she never held elected office that he said that, you know, she Lori Lightfoot brought a prosecutorial attitude to the mayor's office, that it was a combative attitude and that she was very public. He thought way too much in her criticism of people. He said, you know, I've been in politics for a long time. And, you know, Rahm Emanuel criticized a lot of people. But the difference was, he said, you criticize in private you praise in public, and he feels that that's something that she never brought to the job. She's certainly gotten a lot of pushback. Um, you know, other older people have said the same thing, some of her biggest supporters. I mean, Tom Tunney was one of her biggest supporters, and he thought about running against her. Uh, Alder Sedlowski Garza came out and said, I can't work with her anymore. Um what do you think a mayor's attitude should be when people are being um, obstructive or difficult? 
I, you know, I think you can, um, you know, agree to be disagreeable without, or uh, agree to disagree without being disagreeable. Um, and I think, you know, uh, strong leadership, you know, understands that. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, that's something that's, that's missing, um, you know, on the fifth floor right now. And, and, you know, as you uh, suggested, I, you know, it's 16 colleagues of my colleagues are, are leaving. Um, it's been uh, some of the most difficult times to serve and to be a public servant. And that's a time and during difficult times when you seek to bring people together and you say, let's not sweat the small stuff because there's so much big stuff. COVID, social unrest, those are big things in the city. But we were sweating the small stuff all the time. And it, it's just, it wears on you. Yeah. Um, and so that's what you're seeing. But it, it's worn on everybody. But it's not healthy for our city. We, we can't continue, um, you know, to have this combative style and go backwards. Um, and so, you know, that's why I think you see so many people standing up um, and that's one of the reasons I'm standing up, but, you know, we, we do need a mayor that, that leads, you know, with collaboration and, and understands how to get things done, understands how the sausage is made. And, and that's why I'm saying we, we can't have somebody, you know, flying the plane and building it at the same time again. I, I, you know, unfortunately I think some of my uh, opponents are in that same, in that same, um, category, um, which is one of the reasons I stood up. I also stood up because we, we need somebody um, who understands how to represent the entire city and not just segregated portions of it. And we have a number of folks who are appealing, you know, to kind of a segregated population. Um, and, you know, we really need somebody that understands you know, how to represent the entire city. And I represent, you know, a microcosm of the city. You know, like I said, going from downtown um, Jackson, I've got, you know, Grant Park, Northerly Island, Soldier Field, Museum Campus, five times as much lakefront as everyone else. But I also <laughs> go to Hyde Park. Um, and then I have, you know, Bronzeville in the middle. And I have some of the poorest and, and, and most wealthiest areas uh, in the city. Um, you know, I have some of uh, the, uh, a lot of the gun violence. I, you know, have downtown. I've got, you know, I've got the NASCAR issue. I've got a lot of food. I've got all of these things. So I understand, you know, the intricacies of, of managing, you know, a, a big city. Uh, but I also have, you know, a very uh, diverse population with uh, 50% African-American, 40% uh, white, um, 10% other. And again, like I said, um, a diversity of of um, incomes as well and, and, and demographics. And so, uh, you know, we really need somebody who understands how to do that. And, and cranes are flying in, in all parts of my ward, and it's especially in Bronzeville, but Michigan Avenue, you've got 1000M in Hyde Park. You've got um, Harper Square, too, another development going up. And in Bronzeville, I, you know, I can't even count, you know, how many... Um, um, projects are, are moving there, and so mm -hmm. I want to bring I want to bring that type of leadership where all boats are rising um, to the fifth floor, uh, and a type of leadership that that can tackle hard problems, difficult problems, um, 
but, you know, in a way it seeks to get, you know, why people differ. What, what are the challenges here? Um, and oftentimes we'll find, you know, that they're not as strong as, as, as um, you know, people think. One example I think of that and, you know, um, which, you know, was eye-opening for me was when we, um, when the mayor uh, unilaterally, you know, lowered the threshold for um, speed cameras and, and made it a fight about uh, safety, um, for instance. Now, that was a situation where we could have, and a lot of my colleagues raised their hand, said, okay, let's redistribute the cameras. Because a number of people who voted against it wasn't because they were voting against safety. It was because it was on the backs of poor black and brown people that most of the tickets were being written. And so we were suggesting, why don't we redistribute the cameras? And then we can lower the threshold. We could have made more money, you know, had more equity, and been more safe. It, so it was this false fight that that we were put in, um, and 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 all that took was a conversation that we could have had around you know this issue and what the different people's issues were. And mine particularly was, you know, we raised forty million dollars in a matter of you know three or four months, but disproportionately off the backs of black and mm-hmm. black people who couldn't afford it. So let's redistribute. I didn't have any cameras on Michigan Avenue. Um, you know, uh, there weren't any in Lincoln Park, but my older, my colleagues were like, well, we, let's put them there. Let's redistribute them. And so, again, we could have made more money, had more safety, and more oh, So you're saying that idea was not embraced passionately? <laughs> no. Not at all. And, and, and it, it, again, it was just, it, it, there, there are several situations like that where there doesn't have to be a fight. And then afterwards, you know, she, um, you know, posted uh, all the aldermen who voted against it and said that, you know, we were against safety. And, and that, that just wasn't the case. And, and so, you know, again, you know, um, this public kind of shaming and bashing um, but actually, it started day one. It started, you know, when she got in. Mm-hmm. I just, I just thought that that was more, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I, I did that. I did not uh, think that that would be, you know, kind of how, how she would lead for the next four years. In fact, I, I wanted her to be successful. I wanted to work with her. I think a number of people tried that, um, and so it's, it's, it's not that, you know. She wasn't, people weren't trying to support her. That That's not it at all. Um, but, you know, we're here now. And, you know, like I said, uh, we're uh, providing uh, leadership that will bring us together, um, leadership that would represent the entire city. Um, and we have the track record. I have the track record of working with people to get really difficult things done. You know, even when you think about, um, you know, Ida B. Wells, which, you know, seems like something very simple, you know, mm-hmm. that hadn't been done in, that hadn't been done in 50 years, 50 years, you know, there wasn't a street naming since, um, King drive. Uh, and quite frankly, um, uh, you know, daily at that time, um, did not want it to go downtown. <laughs> Didn't want, you know, an African American street to extend downtown. Um, 
And so, you know, putting, uh, you know, Ida B. Wells, changing Congress to Ida B. Wells was actually um, not something that was embraced by a former mayor either um, and got a lot of pushback. You know, mm-hmm. now it's there and people appreciate it. But, you know, that, there's there's a backstory to, to that, but it was difficult. Um, other mayors had tried to rename streets that didn't go through city council. Um, we were able to, again, bring people together, talk about uh, why yeah. we should have you know, this renaming uh, downtown. And so that um, that music means that we have used up our allotted time. Uh, Alderman yeah, Sophia King, definitely. thank you so much for joining us. I wish you well on the 28th and I appreciate you being here. Uh, that does it for us. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at two o'clock. Have a great evening. Good night.